welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to Working with Resistant Clients. Now, here's a quote from the late, great Milton Erickson, and he said, You ought to have your techniques so worded that there are escape routes for all resistance, intellectual, emotional, and situational. Now, I was running a workshop once, and there was a particular uh, delegate who I felt from the very beginning hated me. And uh, if you could see the way that she was looking at me, I'd wager that you thought that she hated me too, because I know contempt when I see it. And I thought, maybe she just hates me uh, because of what I'm saying. So I self-soothed with that sort of uh, thought through my introductory presentation. Okay, the other 30 or so students uh, are engaged and happy enough, I thought. They seem to find what I'm saying reasonable, but this one particular delegate uh, seems to be looking at me with intense contempt bordering on hatred. So I would try to focus on less homicidal-looking faces in the audience, but hers has a supernatural power, so my eyes stray back to her face over and over again. That look, you know, narrowed eyes, curled lips, have we dated in a previous life, I wonder, why does she hate me so much? And for a second, a random image of Abraham Lincoln settling down to watch Our American Cousin, his theatrical date with destiny, comes to mind. She really looks like an assassin. And that, that was years ago. Uh, so I'm teaching on this introductory hypnosis workshop years ago. And in general, people are eager and interested and open, but just not this particular person. As I'm speaking, she interrupts and she announces that what I'm saying is nonsense. And I've barely even started. She turns to the whole group now and announces that she is a psychiatrist, a true professional, not like me. She then proceeds to list her professional qualifications and clinical experience, to which we all listen politely. And truth be told, I feel so flummoxed that my thinking brain has done a runner, but it's about to get even worse. Okay, so it's time for me to ask for a volunteer for my first demonstration of hypnosis. Okay, so I do an introductory talk, then after about 25 minutes, 20 minutes, I do a hypnotic demonstration with a volunteer. And so I ask for a volunteer, and you can imagine my prayer, but the worst happens anyway. The psychiatrist puts up her hand, and no one else does, and she wants to be the volunteer for the first uh, experience or demonstration of hypnosis. In a million years, not you, I scream inwardly as I politely rise and offer her the comfortable chair. And she comes up and sits, uh, not once smiling or taking her eyes off me, still not a flicker of warmth. And as we sit facing one another, I feel like fleeing the scene. Maybe I could start a new life under a different identity in Guatemala. But my momentary stupidity still hasn't quite run its course, and I make my final mistake and ask her, why did you volunteer? Okay, and I'm dimly aware of a collective intake of breath from the onlookers, the way the sea rushes out, exposing the delicate beach before the tidal wave comes crashing back in. And again, with a stony, withering look, unblinkingly, my 
subject replies, because I want to demonstrate to everyone here that hypnosis is a sham. It doesn't work. I'm a psychiatrist, I'm sure she's said that already, with 20 years of experience. Hypnosis is not real. In all my professional experience, I've never encountered hypnosis. So I feel the ghost of Milton Erickson at my shoulder at this point, and I'm flooded with relief. I now know what I need to do. So this woman wasn't a client, simply a demonstration volunteer, and she and I wanted to demonstrate two very different things. But sometimes clients can show, if not quite such antipathy, at least a measure of contrariness or resistance. Yeah, but syndrome, as I like to call it, is part of the human condition, especially for some people more than others. Some people have a particularly strong case of it. Whatever you say to them, they will automatically reply with, yeah, but. Trying to give direct advice to such people is pointless. It's like throwing a lifeline to a drowning man, only, to, only for him to argue with your choice of rope. Contrary or resistant clients will automatically oppose your ideas and suggestions. This kind of resistance shouldn't be confused with someone genuinely disagreeing with something you've said. And you can spot real unconscious contrariness when whatever you say, even if it's what the client themselves previously said, is met with a yeah but, or its equivalent. So your best attempts at help are met with grim determination from your client not to be helped. And there's a video of me working with a classic resistant client in our online course on how to stop anyone smoking. And the way I helped her on the course get out of her old habits and stop smoking was the very same principle I used to help the hostile psychiatrist in my workshop all those years ago, which I'll describe in a moment. So I've written before about the importance of not taking this kind of automatic opposition from a client personally. And I know that's a lot easier said than done. And I've talked about recognizing what may lie behind the resistant, contrary behavior. It may be the need to feel in control, ultimately the need to feel safe. Okay, we like to feel in control because we want to feel safe. The need to derive a sense of status from all interactions could be another driving force to resistance, or simply the habit of tussling about everything. So everything's a tussle. So here are five general considerations when dealing with what seems to be resistance from your client. So number one, reframe the idea of control. If you suspect your client is concerned with losing control, you can talk about how you use hypnosis or coaching or counseling or whatever it is, only to increase the client's control and freedoms. So we might talk about how the phobia or cigarette addiction or depression had been seeking to control the person and how hypnosis or other types of therapy can help them become free. Okay, so it's not about us controlling the client, it's about them getting control over what they've come to see us about. Okay, so you know, rather than us working against one another, it's us working together against the emotional difficulty, so to speak. If, uh, even if the client hasn't said anything about the issue of control or power, if they're behaving in a power-grabbing way, I'll often talk about the idea of control and what real control will look like in their life. Okay, so in this way we can 
uh, frame their need for control in such a way that it becomes aligned with our stated therapeutic goals. People have a right to resist, of course, but they also have a right to get real help when they've asked for it. Getting that help may mean becoming genuinely free to choose what they want. Which brings me to my next point. So number two, allow for any response with greater choice. So when we hypnotize someone, or in fact do any form of psychotherapy with them or coaching, we really need to respect their freedom. People's unconscious need for a sense of autonomy may feel greater than their need to overcome their problem. Okay, even if that problem has a devastating impact on that person's life. So I may have the objective of getting my client to uh, relax and go into hypnosis, because this is what's going to help them. But rather than phrasing my suggestions categorically to bring about my desired outcome to have the client relax, rather than saying something like, you know, you will become more relaxed and start to feel as if you're by the sea in your mind and, and that sort of thing, I can free things up by covering all or at least many possible responses from my client. So they don't feel so pressured to respond in, in the particular way I think best. So I might say, uh, I might be more permissive in my language. Okay, I might say, and you can relax with eyes open or closed. And I really don't know whether, as you relax, pleasant thoughts of the beach might come to mind, or maybe just the colours of some place else that you really enjoy being. Maybe outdoors or indoors, I really don't know. And as you drift into deep comfort, you might find that sometimes you're consciously very aware and even analytical of what I'm saying, and sometimes you might just forget to listen and pay attention to what I'm saying and let my words wash in the background as you start to relax very deeply. So here we're giving them a sense of choice within the already limited frame of relaxing deeply and going into hypnosis. So I'm not saying you are on a beach, I'm saying you can be someplace in your mind where the colours and the sensations and the light and the textures and the atmosphere are just very relaxing. Their need to feel they have the choice is still maintained in a beneficial and healing context. Another way of doing this might be to say something like, and when you've started to control that formerly overpowering cocaine addiction, I wonder how you'll decide to use all your newfound freedoms. So my strategy here is to use the language of control and freedom with the client if I detect this is an issue for them, while linking it to their having more choice and control over what's really been controlling them. Okay, so it's not me trying to stop them using the cocaine, it's me and them helping them get more freedom. So our language is, of course, vital when helping clients transcend their self-sabotage in therapy. Tip number three, use permissive language. When clients are resistant, they may be looking out for language from you that confirms their hidden bias, that this is a confrontational tussle rather than a collaborative situation from which they can benefit. To counter this, we can be directive in a way that comes across as non-directive. Okay. Um, so often in life, opposites or seeming opposites work together. So the key is using permissive language, such as perhaps, 
maybe, I wonder if, I really don't know. And giving lots of choices like, maybe you'll feel that relaxation in the hands first, or maybe the feet, or perhaps you'll start to notice your breathing becoming a bit more like that sleep breathing people do when they're starting to sleep deeply. So this gives the impression of being permissive, so as to allow, to allow for the client's important need to feel autonomous, while smoothly directing everything towards deeper relaxation. Okay, so maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other, but it's all connected to relaxing more completely. I might say, and I really don't know, it's a very permissive way to start a sentence, and I really don't know whether perhaps you're relaxed so deeply now, or maybe just begin to feel really calm in a moment or two. Only you can know that. Okay, but I'm still directing them towards relaxation. I'm saying that I don't know, but that they or part of them does know. I'm suggesting that they relax while using a, re a really permissive communication style. In the video I mentioned earlier from the course on how to stop people smoking, when the client tells me repeatedly at the end of the session, I don't smoke, I'm careful not to take any credit for that because I, I intuited that if she feels I'm taking credit for anything, she'll want to draw back and do the opposite and, and not have it successful. So I tell her, you were a non-smoker when you came into the room today. So it's all, all the credit is hers. Why? Because I sensed that her need to prove me wrong about things was still quite strong. Okay, she's, uh, you know, th this is what she's like. She likes to prove people wrong. Okay, whatever they say, she wants to say the opposite. I didn't want that need to interfere with her escape from cigarettes, which leads us to the next step. So four, give credit to your clients. However wonderful your therapeutic skill, the real therapy is done by your client. It's done in their mind. We need to thank them and give them the credit for what they've achieved. So for example, wow, I'm really impressed at how skilled you are at relaxing. Okay, so rather than them relaxing as me doing something to them, it's a sign that they're good at doing something. Or, I just want to say thanks for being so committed to making these changes. Okay, so we're acknowledging who is really doing the work. And doing this, uh, again, gives back freedom and a sense of capability and competence to our clients. If they have any uh, residual need to tussle with you, and remember that that need may be an unconscious uh, drive uh, for you know status or uh, a sense of control, uh, and might only be evidenced by their behaviour rather than what they say to you. Okay, people can say, "I really want to stop smoking," but then everything you do uh, shows evidence that actually they're fighting attempts to help them stop smoking. So we need to look at behaviour, not just to what people say. And finally, this last step relates to my demonstration with the psychiatrist subject all those years ago. So step number five, encourage the resistance, then direct it towards helping them. So we want our clients to be resistant. We want them to resist depressive thinking. We want them to uh, resist panic attacks. We want them to resist smoking or whatever it is. Okay, we want resistance but we need to direct it in areas that it's going to help them. So resistance is an energy and a force, sometimes a really strong one. 
Okay, we can see resistance as a resource that people can have. The woman in the video on stopping smoking says to me, I don't want to resist hypnosis. And I surprise her by, res by responding that you should be resisting it even more. Okay, you need to resist much more than you have been resisting. Now, if she resists that idea, then she's no longer resisting. But if she doesn't resist that idea, then I'm empowering her by linking her resistance to her therapy goals. You can resist those hypnotic cigarettes. Okay, those, those cigarettes have been hypnotizing you and you do need to resist the hypnosis. I encourage her to resist. And if she resists that idea, then she is of course no longer resisting my overriding ideas. But link her idea of resisting hypnosis with resisting those hypnotic cigarettes. Okay, so you need to understand what the resistance is and use it in therapy. Okay, rather than just suffer it. You'll, you'll recognize this as a kind of therapeutic double bind. And we do this because directly contradicting this kind of client who simply uh, uh, says everything opposite to what you say is like triggering the rubber band effect. The more you pull one way, the more the energy builds to go the other way. Okay, so the truth is that if we don't resist their resistance, there's nothing in our message for them to fight against. We should, in fact, encourage their resistance and then direct it. Okay, so this thought leads me down the uh, thread of time back to the day of my workshop. Okay, and I had to meet that woman's real need in order for us to work together. So my skeptical demonstration volunteer, uh, skeptical or homicidal, uh, certainly uh, full of contempt, uh, sat there and she told me and the whole workshop that she didn't believe in hypnosis and she doesn't believe in me as a person. Okay, She's announced that she volunteered as a hypnotic subject to demonstrate to everyone here that hypnosis is a sham, not real. Uh, but what else has she said? Okay, So my mind is now in a calm state of hyperdrive. Is her need to make me look stupid? I don't think it was. I, I conclude, you know, I can do that all on my own. I don't need someone else's help. Is she trying to prove something scientifically? No, I didn't think she was. Her style was way too emotional, uh, angry in fact, so there was no scientific situation here. Is her need to be seen as the professional person, the one person in the room with all the credentials and professional prestige? So I feel I'm getting closer to the truth here, her real motivation. She wants to be seen as professional. She even interrupted me at the beginning to tell everybody how uh, professional she was. So I meet her defiant gaze and I say, now, I don't want you to close your eyes and go into deep calming hypnosis a second sooner than your unconscious mind lets you know that it's professional enough to go into deep hypnotic trance for the professional development of everyone in this room, including you not before your unconscious mind lets you know that it's professional enough to allow you to teach everyone here what hypnosis is, will your eyes begin to close. Okay, Not before your unconscious mind lets you know that it has the kind of scientific inquiry and professional capacity, will you go into hypnosis? And she stares at me as if stunned. I've suggested that it's okay not to go into hypnosis, and it seems in fact as though I've said that I don't want her to go into hypnosis. But to resist going into trance might now seem like complying with me. 
and we know that she doesn't like to do that. So I'm not resisting her resistance. But I've also suggested somehow that real professionalism would be displayed by her entering deeply into hypnotic trance. I've implied that in such a way that's hard for her conscious mind uh, to get. Okay, and on some level, she gets my message that not working with me now would be in some way unprofessional and anti-educational. And she started it, after all, okay, with this professionalism business. So my language here is confusional. And we all know that confusional language is part of the hypnotherapist's uh, toolkit. So as to appeal to her unconscious mind, the part that flies free from lumbering logical constructs, I've been a bit confusing, but it does make sense on one level. Okay, I don't want you to go into hypnosis until your unconscious mind lets you know that it's able to demonstrate professionally uh, in a learning context. So she continues to stare crossly at me. Okay, she still looks cross, but I feel I can see this anger dissolving, even healing before my eyes. And so the one eye now is starts to close, uh, a purely unconscious response, so it seems. And for a few seconds, the other eye still looking at me with intense hatred, um, you know, still there, but the other one eye is closing and, um, you know, wavers between open and conscious awareness and hypnotic closure, okay. Then finally the other eye falls shut and she quickly drifts into a deep and relaxing hypnotic trance, okay. And this professional psychiatrist with more letters after her name than you could shake a stick at, went on to display many hypnotic phenomena. Okay, much to the amazement and bafflement and confusion of the other students in the room, no doubt. No one was more surprised than my subject when she resurfaced from trance 10 minutes later. And I thanked her, telling her the demonstration had been a wonderfully professional demonstration and learning opportunity for the whole group for their assembled professional development. And she seemed happy, in fact and she seemed to go from one extreme, total scepticism, to the other extreme, total enthusiasm and support. Okay, psych psychologists call, it, call this uh, conversion syndrome. She went on to do our diploma course and sent uh, me clients for many years afterwards. And for me, this whole experience was an amazing lesson. Okay, the lesson is keep calm and recognize the real need driving the resistant behavior. Her need was to one of status. Okay, she wanted to be the one with the status in the room, not me. She didn't want me to have that. She wanted it for herself. Okay, once I suggested that she wouldn't have that status if she didn't go into hypnosis, then she could go into hypnosis. So don't resist the client's resistance. Encourage it in such a way that you can direct it towards a good outcome for the client, in this case for my subject, and also for the other students actually wishing to learn about hypnosis. And more generally, never argue. This may all seem a little too right brain or intuitive to our Western reductionist models of psychology, but this way of working is becoming more common and better understood amongst practitioners. For the remainder of the workshop, whenever I caught the psychiatrist's eye, which was now more friendly, she lit up the room and my mind with her smile. It was such a turnaround. I was suddenly reminded of going to a new school as a small child and pretending I didn't want to 
play with the other kids in case they wouldn't accept me. Okay, and this is perhaps how her experience had been for her. My subject's need to protect her standing had been met and she was now free to play, as it were. I was also reminded of the words of Dr. Milton Erickson when he said, the unconscious mind is decidedly simple, unaffected, straightforward and honest. It hasn't got all the uh, facade, this veneer of what we call adult culture. Sometimes we have to respectfully remove the veneer to get through to the truth of a person. So, I hope you found that useful and interesting. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. Okay.